You're listening to Proropod. Welcome as we, Portia the lifelong fan and Amanda the first time reader, discover the books of Agatha Christie. We are sisters who live on opposite ends of the U.S. doing a quarantine project and who love to be soothed by British murder mysteries. In this shithole of a moment in history, it's nice to have Poirot or Miss Marple solve it all. Hello. Hi. So here we are. Here we are. Welcome back Ready to Quarrel Pod. <laughs> and we are today going to talk about Lord Edgware Dies. Yes. Which so we're back on Praro after our break with Quinn. Right. Our long break with Quinn. We had a long break with Quinn and Marple there for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and you were saying that you don't love this one. I do not. And I was trying to figure out how to articulate why. And so I'll be thinking about that, you know, like, why don't I love this one? Um, but it was well received and it's been turned into a, mu- a movie a bunch of times. So I mean, it's, it's very clever. I do think that I think that the, you know, the twists are smart mm-hmm. and it's interesting. Um, guess- so basically... Go ahead. I think it's because, and we can get into it more, but I think it's because it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about that. I, I just don't really like them when they're super sad. And it's interesting because, of course, you would think that in a series where people die, at least in, you know, someone dies in every story, just about, um, that I would, but not a very many of them are sad. So. Yeah. Well, we sh- we should talk about the details. So this was written in um, published in thirty three. Okay, she apparently wrote it uh, while she was with her um, second husband now, um, who's an archaeologist, and they were excavating a skeleton. And so oh, interesting. So and then it was turned into a movie right away in thirty four. Then they did another one in eighty five where Ustinov. Peter Ustinov played Poirot and Faye Dunaway played this double character role, which we'll talk about. And then the, you know, uh, so anyway, so it's been, it's been made a lot of different times. So. Okay. So the plot is that um, we're, we have the, the narrator is Hastings of the book and he and Poirot are attending this impressionist, this American performer who does impressions and she's very talented. And an impression that she does at the very end is this famous actress, Jane Wilkinson. And Hastings kind of describes her impression as sort of like giving away the magician's tricks, like by doing her typical body language and her speech patterns, it kind of like makes you realize that's what she does and kind of takes away some of the magic behind it. And Jane Wilkinson is in the audience. And so Hastings is like, oh, oh, you know, shit. This is like she, she's going to be offended by this, but she's just laughing and clapping and she's looks delighted with this performance. And then afterwards they all go to dinner somewhere. And one of the things they talk about how this actress that they were all watching Carlotta Adams was really good at being a chameleon who could be lots of different characters and you believe them different ages right. and different. Yeah. And, um, 
And Jane Wilkinson, you got the sense, was not like that at all. She had one character, and that was her stick. Right. That was herself. And, and even Hastings, or excuse me, Proro even points out, like, she would only be good in movies when she's the star. She could never play, like, a right. character actor piece or a supporting role. She's like this huge, larger-than-life presence, and she's a very famous American actress. She's married to a British lord, and so they're all. So Hastings and Prado go to dinner. I guess they go to the spot because Carlotta Adams is there with her person, and um, Jane Wilkinson. Wilkinson is there. They're all at the same place. I guess it's a it's at a hotel restaurant because Jane sees Prado and is like, "You have to come to my room right now. I want to talk to you about something. Let's pack up our dinners, and you're coming upstairs." Right, because she's kind of also a demanding American woman who you could just carrying in all over the place. Except for so, like, yeah, the famous version of that. So even more entitled. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what she yeah. asks him to do is to, I mean, she phrases it provocatively, um, help her get rid of her husband. Um, and Poirot is like do you not know what I do and she's like yeah yeah no I know what you do I want you to talk to him and get him to agree to divorce so I could now marry a duke instead of a lord right she's clearly a social climber and what's interesting I still I never understood why Poirot accepted because he keeps saying well I I solve murders or whatever and then she's like you're gonna do this for me and that's a good point and then, and she's like, That's people really just give me point. what I want. People, things go well for really, you know. And then I never understood why he said yes. That's a really good point because, you know, there it are did, other times he's not the one who negotiates. And, yeah, usually he's somebody who's like, yeah, I'm not interested. No, because he can pick and choose his cases. So right. why did he pick this one? And I never really um, understood why he said yes. And the other thing, while he's up in her room and she's telling him he's got to do this, Carlotta Adams has also come, been told to come up. And Jane Wilkinson's like takes her into the bedroom and like has a sidebar with her and right. is befriending and, her. And Carlotta Adams, yeah, and Carlotta Adams is thrilled of like a, you know famous American actress. Although Carlotta Adams was also American. Yes, they're both both yeah. American. Um, mm-hmm. And that, but there, she's thrilled that they get to meet each other. Um, cause yeah, the, and even though the book starts out with them at a performance of Carlotta, um, she's not the star. She's not. No, no, no. Star. Yeah. She's up and coming and she's doing impressions. Whereas Jane is like a major movie star. Yeah. And Carlotta comes, her date that night was this guy named Ronald Marsh, Ronald Marsh. And he weirdly calls Jane Wilkinson aunt jane when he's he's drunk and in portia's version using racial slurs like and all, all up in the racial slurs really quite <laughs> offensive i pissed me off so he's super drunk and he's up there with carlotta as you know jane is is befriending carlotta and ronald marsh is there and he calls jane wilkinson aunt jane but it seems like they're around the same age so it's strange right right and so we don't realize till later why he does that because she's like who the hell is that guy she doesn't even know Right, but he is the nephew of her husband that she's trying to divorce. Right, but apparently they've never met um, because he's an estranged nephew who's broke um, and his uncle wouldn't give him money. Um, 
So anyway, uh, the other thing that was interesting, and this is another, so besides the racial slurs, um, when Hastings and Poirot are talking about Carlotta Adams and how talented she is, and Hastings like, oh, she's amazing. She's so talented. And Hastings like, oh, but she's in danger. Because did you notice that she's a Jewess, you know, which, and then like Hastings is like, I could totally see it in her face, which is like, okay, people. Um, And then uh, he's like, yeah. And so she's really talented, but she has the danger of their race, which is a love of money. And I'm like, really, Praro? What? What? Um, Oh, yeah. That was not also, that was not in the version I read. What? He said, yeah, no, he said, that she has a love of money. I think that's the, that was definitely edited. The, the, the racial slurs from Brian Martin. And also he says, I think she has a love of money, but he doesn't say it's because of anti-Semitism that I'm saying that. Oh my gosh. Really? They cut that too. Yeah. And the version I read, it definitely, because I remember um, that part where he says, I think her weakness is a love of money, but definitely did not say <laughs> anti-semitic things around that wow yeah so i mean you could see why like we're in the first freaking chapter and i'm like oh you know because it's one thing to have the yeah drunk- i don't know what year the version i read was published but they definitely cleaned up some of that because it's one thing to have the drunk um belligerent guy use racial slurs but he's like a side character it's another thing to have pro be like yeah Paro, our hero of these, our expert. Yeah, to be to reinforce anti-Semitism. Re- yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, come on. So yeah, no, they they changed that. Wow. <laughs> at least so, they did. I don't know. <laughs> so and then at this night, um, the same thing. I think it's it's kind of like a party in Jane's room. Um, she's just ranting about needing to get rid of her husband, and she says in front of all these people. She says, you know, I just got to get rid of him. If I have to just take a taxi there and kill him myself, I'll have to do it. Right. And, um, and her ex is there. Um, right. Her, she's hanging out with her ex. Is that where her right. ex was with her? Brian Martin. So he's hanging yeah, out he's with a, her. He's around a lot. And so there's a lot of question in this book is like, is he around a lot because he's not over her? Or you know like i couldn't ever figure out you know the, it was weird it was like why he's there because he kept on talking about how amoral she was and like right so yeah so he's hanging out with jane and everything and then they agree to this next day he goes to Poirot's office or whatever and has some story about a guy that's following him that he keeps seeing in different places in the states and in different continents who has a gold tooth, but is in otherwise in other disguises. And he's telling the story. Um, and he can't really give all the details because he has to ask the permission of a young lady to give the full details to Praro. But then while he's there, he's like, um, Jane's the worst. She's amoral. She would kill someone. She would totally kill someone. FYI, Praro, that lady could kill someone. Just saying that. Okay, go up. Okay, bye. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, the whole thing. But it's like, well, if you don't, if you think he's amoral, then why are you hanging out with her still? And he's a, he's also an American actor. All of these people are American actors, and they're all the worst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um. So, 
So then Praro like had one meeting scheduled with the Lord Edsware, like, and then like it gets rescheduled. Yeah, it gets rescheduled. So he goes over there and he's like, Hey dude, um, your vice wants a divorce, and the guy is like, Yeah, I already said I'd give her one. Yeah, and Praro was like, Wait, you did? And he was like, Yeah, I sent her a letter. She already knows this because apparently he'd been saying no for a long time and he admitted that. But then at some point he changed his mind. He sent her a letter. But, um, and so Prawa goes back to, uh, Jane and is like, he said he already said yes. And she's like, I never got that letter. Right. So it's like, what the hell? Why would she ask him to do this pointless job? So it's like, okay, right. and so he goes to, doesn't he go to Jane Wilkinson and says, yeah, he agrees to it, and she's like, oh, thank you so much. Here's a bunch of money, or something like that. And you're like, well, this is weird. Um, right, but she said she never, she said, oh, well, that's great, because I, she said she didn't get the letter. Right. And that's why she'd ask him to do it. Right. And then the next morning, uh, Jap shows up. Oh, that's right. Jap comes over because he's like, um, you were just in his appointment book, but he's dead now. Yeah, stabbed. And super stabbed. Super stabbed. So then they go... Like um, brainstem stabbed. Like a, like a, a, a very surgical precision brainstem, you know, oh, Vulcan. One stab and you're dead thing. It wasn't like messy <laughs> stabbing. It was like in and out. <laughs> Did you say Vulcan? Uh, I mean... Okay, I just... I, I, I appreciate it. I just was like... <laughs> I, I just was a little surprised, but I, I... Well, that's one thing that us lay people know from Star Trek lore is the Vulcan maneuver, right? Isn't there, like, a thing that they, they do and they knock you out? Um, yeah, there's the, there's a the mind meld um, that people talk about a lot, but yeah, um, there are some maneuvers, yes. So. I thought there was, like, something that they, like, chopped you and then you knocked out immediately. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God, it's been a while since I've watched original Star Trek, so um, <laughs> I could be totally off with that. It's definitely like you know, pull it on my 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 eighties childhood brain. <laughs> yeah, the person who is an expert in that was my ex, so I you know I don't have that uh, reference anymore very much. <laughs> so um, anyway, so he's stabbed. Yeah, and, and they know who did it because. His the butler and the, his secretary said his wife came to the door mm-hmm. and was like, "I'm his wife." Went in, came back out, left, and then next morning he's dead in that room. Right. So clearly she did it. And then, um, yeah, she asked for him and everything. She asked for him and said exactly who she was, looked like herself, and then the next day he's dead. And but then immediately they find out that she was reported to be and turns out witnesses agreed that she was at this dinner party right at this very same time right so um then they're like okay what the heck so then um people start thinking oh yeah uh perot starts thinking oh yeah carlotta adams did a really good impression of her um she could have done an impression you know she could have impersonated her and then Praro suddenly goes uh oh she's in danger because right and it and it seems like you know probably you know in that hypothesis like some mastermind hired her to show up and look like because um, Jane wasn't supposed to go to the dinner party she was supposed to be 
sick with a headache. So if someone hired Carlotta to go to the house and like show up and walk in and then he separately killed the guy, Jane wasn't supposed to have an alibi. So it looks like she's being set up, like she's being framed. But right. because she changed her mind and decided to to go to this um, dinner party after all that she wasn't going to go to, then she ended up with an alibi. So it looks like someone used Carlotta and paid her, you know, not telling her the purpose to go impersonate her to in order to frame Jane. That's what it looks like. Right. So then Pro was like, oh, she's in danger and rushes over to her place. And then her... Um, person because everybody has a servant because in that world um was like no she's fine she's still asleep but then they go in and she's dead with an overdose right. of veronal but i don't know what veronal is does anybody know what veronal is do you know what veronal is <laughs> i actually thought about that when i was reading it and i was like i should look that up and then i all right well we oh we will look it up now because the wonderful World Wide Web knows. Um, it's a oh Barbadol, and what? So it sounds like a. And what? You know, a barbiturate. It's a. It's a. Oh, it's a. It's like you know, but not an opioid, but not not an opioid. <laughs> okay. Um... Inducing sleep by suppressing brain function. You know, okay. it's it's a barbiturate a barbiturate okay it's a barbiturate drug which is used as a sedative sedative okay okay so yeah all right well that's bad okay so so you could be using it to sleep which is like you know what i mean like um and that's what the whole thing they were trying to figure out if she was known to take um veronal for sleeping and her maid is like no never had her, her maid and her friend were like no she never takes that but um, it could have been that you know a natural overdose or not a natural but like a accidental overdose right right but then yeah her maid was like she'd never done it and then they also found um a pair of glasses in her um oh and then um a gold case that had the veronal in it but also didn't they found the outfit that um was worn for when Jane showed up at the, or, you know, the person who looked like Jane showed up at right. The, the... So she had the clothing that the the Jane wore to the house, a pair of strong eyeglasses, and um, this gold box that was like customized and personalized with her initials and had rubies on it, and that had Veronal in it. Right, right. And then... so th- those were a weird combination of things to have in her handbag, but that really reinforced the thing that she was the one that showed up at the house because she was wearing it was like the dress and the hat and stuff that she'd worn. Right. That Jane was seen wearing to the house that night. And then they did. I remember that um, the the maid at the house, the maid of Lord Edgware, was like, "Oh, it was definitely Jane Wilkinson because she's evil." And I definitely saw her face. I definitely, definitely. And it turns out that she was upstairs. And the Jane Wilkinson, whoever it was, was wearing a hat. So Paro was like, how could you see her face? Because you were upstairs right. and she was wearing a hat. And she was like, well, I knew by the way she walked. And it's like, uh, okay. So, you know, so the only Again, person... that's something you can, you can do if you're doing an impression of someone. You imitate their body language. So the only person who actually saw Jane Wilkinson's face that night was the butler. 
who'd never met her who'd never- and only knew her from like you know being famous but hadn't seen her in real life right so that it threw all this stuff as to actually if it was her and then we start learning more and more about this nephew who as i said was the drug belligerent racist guy early in the book who was weirdly and this is a back to so brian martin who had dated jane wilkinson had grown up with carlotta adams um and so there's a lot of like all the americans somehow know each other i forgot that he grew up with her which also yeah small small country right america (laughs) so small but you're like okay so he grew up with carlotta and then he dated jane and anyway and then um ronald marsh um had been the date of carlotta when we started the book and he was the drunk racist belligerent guy um and then he also was apparently broke and cut off from money by his uncle three months earlier. So he definitely had a um, motive. Right. And initially he's got a um, alibi because he's at a performance with these people. But then turns out that partway through the performance, like intermission or whatever, he and his cousin, so Lorge Edwards' daughter, left the performance, took a taxi over, and went in because she's like, oh, you're broke? Well, my dad... Because the, the other uh, premise of this is that Lord Edward is like a weird, terrible, sadistic person. Right. And so he, she's like, oh, God, my dad's the worst. Um, I got some pearls that you can hawk since he won't give you any more money. So they leave the performance and they find this out because the tax, you know, Praro tracks down the, the taxi or tells Jap to. And so basically they, leave, they left the performance, went in, she grabs... A, um, pearls to hawk but Brian also goes in um, and they leave so he was there at the house the night that the murder was performed so and so like everybody he, and he had a fake alibi everybody was at the house so this whoever looked like Jane Ronald Marsh the nephew the daughter who and- also has a good motivation because she's like a young lady like older teenager or you know young 20s and but still under her father's control he and sounds I like thought- a terrible sadist Right. And so, yeah, she's got a terrible father. And then Brian Martin was also there. Yeah. So Ronald Marsh says that he saw Brian Martin walk up. And then I can't remember why he said he Because wh- I guess the butler looked like him. Oh. There's a lot of lookalikes in this. So it turns out that it was the butler who happened to look like right, right. Brian Martin, and then the butler left and stole a bunch of money at the after the right. So the the butler goes missing after this too. So that looks sketchy. So everybody knows each other. Everybody's at this house. Everybody's suspicious, and everybody looks like each other. (laughs) So (laughs) yes. So based on that, the one who looks the most suspicious is Ronald because it's his. Yeah, because he's also he inherits. (gasps) So he inherits the title. Right, um, so now he's Lord so he's got the most yeah he's got the most motivation uh, motive because he he inherits the title so he goes from broke to now he's a lord and he's got this house and all this money and whatever yeah and so that's so we've got a lot of i mean and any good agatha christie story has a lot of um suspects right and a lot of people with a good motive and a lot of people good, yeah. And and but Praro of- doesn't believe that he did it, and we don't know why he doesn't believe it, right? Um, because and Hastings even like 
in when he first meet the guy, Hastings was like, I kind of like him, even though he's drunk and belligerent and racist. So, you know, <laughs> but I mean, they took out the racist stuff. Um, so, right. So in, in the version I read, he just comes off as sort of like a rich ne'er-do-well who, you know, right. is kind of frivolous and bad with money, but likable. Right. So anyway, that's mm. anyway. So he gets um, arrested. Uh, so and then, then uh, we go, have to go we, on. we know that um, Carlotta sent a letter um, the night that uh, all this right. happened, and then to her sister, right? And so um, Poirot's like, "Ooh, ooh, I gotta get the letter! I gotta get the letter!" And he gets the letter, and in it, she's like, "I met somebody, and he's really impressed with my." Um, impression impersonation of uh jane wilkinson and i think i'm going to be able to win a bet and win ten thousand dollars and there was something about the ten thousand dollars like i'm going to be able to visit you or you're going to be able to come and visit me right right his sister Mm -hmm. and so she was super psyched about doing this whatever it was this impersonation of um jane wilkinson and that's a part as i um one of the things that between the sadistic dad, um, his daughter, and this young lady who apparently is a good actress and a good impressionist and was super excited because she was going to get enough money to get her sister to visit, and she dies. Um, this is kind of one of those, like, everyone sucks in this book, and it's sad. you know. Right, so- and I think you're right. I think you always get upset when an innocent dies, and Carlotta is the innocent mm-hmm. who dies. As well as the the second death who happens, or the third death. Right, um, right. So maybe that's why, you, you know, I understand why that bothers you. Yeah. Um, so basically, in, in this letter, she names Ronald Marsh, and then on another page, she goes on to say, you know, he says that if I can pull off this bet, I'll get 10,000 pounds. Right. Um, and why was, oh, that's right, because she was going out with Ronald Marsh, right? Because she <laughs> brought him, She we saw him as a date. Right, right, right. Right. So the writer letter reads as if, you know, that it's the he of the of the of the second page refers to that. But Praro looks at it and figures out that there's missing pages. Right. That they and cut so off, that, yeah. that some people sort of like, you know, someone cut off the middle of the letter where it refers to who actually hired her to do this. Right. Because it, yeah, it doesn't, because the, I met Ronald Marsh and I'm dating him was a slightly different conversation than they are, whoever it was very excited about my impersonation. So, and and it said he, um, so this is where the book for me kind of goes off the rails because for, you know, from Hastings perspectives, Praro sort of like, loses interest so marsh is in jail awaiting trial and like nothing happens for a little bit and like praro sort of back burners it and is taking other cases and hastings is like that was weird but okay and then they are at a hasting no i think they're all at a another dinner party because mm-hmm, where jane wilkinson do. is there right and hey, Paro had to leave. Um, and so during the dinner, there's a faux pas because Jane is this, you know, amazing, famous actress, but she's not a real well-read or cultured person. And so at the, 
at the table, someone makes a reference to Paris of Troy, as in mythology, Paris of Troy, and maybe doesn't say of Troy, but makes a, make us a reference to Paris. And then Jane is like, oh, Paris is out. Paris is like the city. Right. And it's cl- everyone else at the table knows what's going on. And Jane doesn't know what's going on and doesn't even realize she had a faux pas. So it's like a real cringy moment. And then and there's, there's this dude ahead. who is like, that's weird. Um, he says something, but we don't, he doesn't say what's weird. He just says that's weird. And he goes up to Hastings. He's like, something's weird. Um, can I talk to Perot about it? And like a lot of times, he's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll call when, you know, since Perot had to leave, um, I'll call later. And so he calls and says hello and then says, ooh, someone's at the door. And then is killed. Over and, the he, phone. and he said, when he's on the phone, he says something about Paris. Right. And then he's like, oh, someone's at the door. And then he never comes back because he got killed. He got Vulcan stabbed again. Also. Right. Also Vulcan stabbed. Um, and this is, she has done this a couple of times. And I don't know if it's the books we've already read. But when someone is like, ooh, ooh, I have to tell the detective something. They're not killed right away. They're killed while they're on the phone. <laughs> right? Like. Right. He could have been killed at any point, but no, no, no. He's killed while he's on the phone. In the middle of telling it. Yeah. Right. Uh, Which Um, is such a, like, I don't know. uh, Is that how it works? Like, if only they had waited three seconds, you know, like. Right. So they go to his apartment and he's already dead. Right. And then, so they're walking down the street and Paro is doing his rant about trying to figure it out and, you know, calling Hastings stupid, but then also calling himself stupid or whatever. And he hears a passerby say something. Yeah, what is Oh, something about, like, Ellis. Why didn't they ask Ellis? Something about Ellis. And Ellis was the name of Jane's maid. And somehow that makes it all make sense to um, Praro. So now is the time, based on this, like, overhearing someone say the word Ellis, then he does the the big scene where he invites everybody over to do the big reveal. Right. And yeah. Except for Jane's not there. He invites everyone, like Brian and, well, not Ronald because he's in jail, but he invites Brian and the, oh, we didn't talk about there's a friend of Carlotta's who works in a hat store. Right. Who now starts dating Brian. Right. Because they're all, the, the, this world is very, very small. <laughs> Everyone knows each other or has dated each other or grew right. up together. So, ha- so there's a woman who owns a hat store and she's the one who sold the hat for the, the, you know, they use to like go in. So she's the one who spoke to Carletta's character and not being on drugs and also talked about how she needed to get a special hat. Um, so um, she, he invites everyone over for the big reveal, including Jap. And then he does this weird fake out where he like basically lays into that American actor, Brian, for this fake story with the guy who was following him with the gold tooth and how basically makes it sound like he thinks he's the murderer. And then turns out he's like, just kidding. I know you're not the murderer, but that was wag. Don't tell me a fake story about a guy because young people don't have gold teeth anymore. Ha ha. (laughs) You just came because you wanted to put plant, you know, suspicions against Jane. Which I was like, well, he was right, though. She was about to kill someone. Right. But, but yeah. Caro did not like that. So she, he sort of, like, spent the first half of this big reveal 
with a fake reveal trying to make Brian freak out, you know, that you're the one that's accused, even though it wasn't. Right, which, you know, reminded me of um, the secret of Chinney's big reveal, you know, where he was, like, faking out and everybody was faking out. And remember that scene where... Yeah, yeah. But in that case, there was a point. Right, this one, he literally was like, I just wanted to punish you. Right, so there was I just no wanted point you to, to punish yeah. or trying to trick me. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, but he was right, man. She she was Kelly. She did. She was a Borel. Yeah. So So then that's so that's the thing. So the, the the twist is that Jane really did do it. So and I in rereading it to re- prepare for this, I was like, if Carlotta could impersonate her at the house, she could also be the one impersonating her at the party. Why did Praro never think of that? Right. Right. Like, why did he never consider the option? Okay, if there's two Janes and one of them's Carlotta, he never just tried out the hypothesis. Okay. What if she was the one at the dinner party? Right. And so that's what the tell was. That's why that guy realized something was wrong because he had talked about with fake Jane, who was Carlotta at this original dinner party. He talked about literature and maybe Greek even carriage. Yeah. And yeah. yeah at that dinner party because she was smart and well-read and so at this party when she was like you know kind of ditzy he was like that's not the same person and right. like a lot of people giving an impression a lot of times once you realize it's not the same person then you can see all the other reasons that it's not the same person right right and so probably but we don't know because he's dead because he didn't get a chance to tell us right right so then the the plot was actually really well done and I'd always kind of, okay, so the reason she had to kill her husband is because the Duke she wanted to marry was Catholic and, right. wouldn't, and wouldn't marry somebody divorced. So even though he was, her husband would now grant her divorce, that Duke would never marry her. So, you know, like that night when she met Poirot and met Carlotta at the same time, she was setting this whole thing up, right? Right. She was setting up... Um, the, the having a motive but not having a motive if and she was setting up our carlotta to the you know she was setting that all up that night um and so I, it's really quite devious and then having it so that she told everybody she had a headache carlotta went to this dinner party she was invited to with people that she didn't know right and that no one at the dinner party knew jane Right, uh, which is so, great because then she could just, you know, be do this impression of Jane, but people weren't going to call her out. And then she went to um, her husband and killed him. And then they switched clothes um, and then gave her the Veronal. So the night that she, after the play, she constructs this all. Yeah, and that's the part that's interesting because it's like, did she meet Poirot? I mean, the meeting Poirot would have been happenstance, right? Like he was just happened to be at the same hotel, but she's like, ooh, if I get him to go and confirm that I don't have a motive, and then I have this woman who can be me so I can be in two places at once, then boom, I don't have a motive, and um, she can give me an ally by. So she came up with this, what, like when she on was the yeah and then um so they yeah so they wore the the glasses they found in carlotta's bag turned out to b- belong to jane's 
maid, Alice. Um, and she was wearing them as a disguise to go meet Carlotta or something like that, right? Right. right. When she walked into the hotel, she wore the thick glasses because that would really disguise her look so that she didn't look like a famous actress when she walked in. And then there was a whole thing about them switching clothes. And then uh, Carlotta went home with the dark clothes so that it looked like, again, that she had dressed up as... Jane at the house, not Jane at the dinner party. Right. Because, yeah. And then the other thing was about this whole, there was a, there was a kind of a red herring about Paris because the guy right before he died did something about Paris. So they kept thinking Paris, the city, the, the golden, the golden ruby box, the drugs in it had Carlotta's initials. And then inside it, it's an inscription about like, we'll always remember Paris or something. And so, that was this whole red herring about something about Paris, but none of that was anything. It was just something that Jane did ordered to again, put, make it look like she had drugs on her and it was her own Veronal. And also to um, kind of just have a red herring again about someone related to Paris. Cause that's where Poirot was like, well, who did she meet in Paris? Right. Right. So it was all this. And then, um, Right here. And then when they were changing clothes, uh, Jane found the letter that um, Carlotta right. was sending to her sister. And instead of throwing it out completely, she took out a page that mentioned her name and then ripped it so it didn't say she anymore. It said he. Right. So the beginning of the page, right, she ripped it instead of cutting it. Because at first, Prava was like, if this person is not about order and method, because the page should be cut and not ripped and then that's when he realized it had to be ripped so that it looked like a casual thing like it just was ripped unevenly or it was actually a very purposeful rip because it cut off the s so right. that it accused a man so and it kind of specifically accused ronald marsh which worked out really well for her right right how neat was that for her yeah so she did a brilliant job of of doing all this stuff and then killing do the, the killing herself she killed right and, her and apparently herself. she'd been premeditating this because she met a physician who was talking about there's a way that you can stab someone in their brainstem that kills immediately and she pretending to want to use that as a plot in a movie had the physician show her several times so that she could like master knowing that was i guess she just wanted to have that in her back pocket for her husband killing um and so that's why she knew exactly where to stab these people in the brainstem. But then, yeah, the, 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 the murder plot was pretty ingenious and she would have got away with it if it weren't for those kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> those perros. <laughs> those Sorry. Kids, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and then she does a little bit of happy ending at the end because um, Martin and uh, the hat lady get together right. and now Geraldine no longer actor, Brian Martin is going to marry hat store lady and then you know the Geraldine doesn't have an evil father anymore which you know she didn't right and so she, she can and she's got a crush on her cousin who's now the lord so we're back on cousin love we're back on it's not it's not implied they're in a relationship but you know yeah she's on him and, and, know, and he's a lord, but he's super racist. Can I mention that again? 
<laughs> I think you can. Uh, well, that was in and out of my version. I guess I'm glad. Uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. But what's yeah. interesting, I, I thought it was, it's a, it's a funny afterward because basically the last chapter is a letter from Jane to Praro. Right. Basically talking, explaining her whole plot. And she basically accuses him, like, I just wanted to be happy. I hope you feel bad for what you've done for me. Like, I should have got away with it. And she really doesn't have any remorse or any, like, I think it's bad that these people died. She's just like, no, I wanted to be happy. That was a solution. You shouldn't have figured it out and turned me in. I hope you feel bad for this. But she also didn't, wasn't really mad. She was just like, oh, but I'll probably be famous because I'll be um, hung. People will come to see me. And the last line or something is like, do you think they'll make you make me uh, a, a Madame Toussaint's max, a wax figure? <laughs> she did say that. <laughs> so she's definitely, you know, in, in love of being a celebrity more than anything else. Um, right. And so she's a freaking serial killer. Like, yeah, just uh, sociopath, like with no, no feeling for human life at all. Um. And then, yeah, so. So it's so in, in terms of looking at this as a book, it's such a smart murder plot. But I understand for you, because, like, again, I reread it because we, you know, postponed this recording a couple of times. So I didn't look forward to rereading it. Like when I would I would start it, I'd be like, it's, it's a really good plot. It's really smart. But I think it is sad because like an innocent two innocents die, you know, this young impressionist and this guy who's smart and just realized something was wrong. Like, so two innocents die. You don't care about Lord Edward dying because he sounds like the worst, but these two innocents dying suck. And then, yeah. And then I don't know, like the way that Hastings painted it. And again, Hastings as a, you know, reliability as a narrator, I don't know, but basically when he's like, Oh, Praro gave up and lost interest. And he does. At the very beginning, Hastings, as a narrator, says that Praro doesn't think, like this case. He thinks it was one of his failures, which it was. But I didn't like the fact that he just gave up. Right. Which, and you know, only when he heard someone say Ellis on the street did he solve the whole thing. And I was like, how did he never think if Carlotta could be impersonating one Jane, she might be impersonating the other Jane? Like, he never thought of that as an option. And it didn't, like, most of, the, most of Agatha Christie's twist endings, I never thought of. And that's why she's so amazing because I'm, you know, I'm reading these books hundred years later, you know, in a modern era where there's been so many twists in every movie. And I, and I, I read the twist and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. But in this book, it's like, you could totally think of that. Like if she was, she, if she impersonated one, she might've impersonated the other. And that makes a lot of sense. But the, the well, fact that Paro never got there. Especially since he watched the impersonation. Right. Like, and he watched um jane wilkinson watched the impersonation like right. if it had just been that he knew that she was a good impersonator or yeah like he it was and it's all not that and it's not really like b-side knowledge to understand that like catholics don't do divorce right right I so mean, like it's easy to know that this famous like the guy later. she wanted to remarry was like the richest man in england literally he had like a what was his title Duke a duke he was a yeah. duke and he was literally like the richest man in england and, and so everybody like, wanted to marry him apparently and, and it's a, and you know being catholic is a minority so that would be common knowledge they would know that he was catholic 
And they would know a lot of things about him because he was very, very rich and had a title. So it's not like he's like some obscure, turns out he's Catholic. It would be known that he's Catholic. So like the Catholic twist would be known and the fact that maybe she impersonated the other one. And the because the fact that he was Catholic as a motive and the her learning how to stab, we didn't learn until she did the letter at the end. And that is a little bit of a cop out. It's one thing where, you know, in when we've had unreliable narrators and then we get the stuff at the end where we get to read what they're really like deep down, you know. Right. Um, but in this case, like the fact that so much of what she did, we don't learn about until her letter at the end. Um, oh, I, I thought Praro um, called out the Catholic thing as a motive when he did his big reveal. Right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Because otherwise, be- it would because he needed to understand some motivation. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I, but I guess maybe this is another reason why this is n- disappointing is that Praro is not on his best game. A, yeah yeah and it's, yeah we don't like to see him fail well and you know at the very beginning when he says she's in danger because of her love of money and then throws in anti-semitism it sounds like he's blaming her for her own death but if somebody said to you hey go impersonate me and i'll give you ten thousand dollars if it works and you're like hey that means i can get my sister to come and visit that's not a love of money no, that's a normal, yeah, that's not like a weird, because I have weird motivations. That's like a normal, yes, I'll say yes to that, sure. Right, I mean. $10,000 or 10,000 pounds, 10,000 is anything. Right, and if, you know? and and the idea that she wasn't, she was told it was a bet to see if she could pull it off, and she probably took it as a challenge as an actress, Right, and this other woman is a very well-established big ego actress. That sounds right, you know? Like, so, why would you not think that? Why would you assume it's because she's going to go kill someone and wants an alibi? <laughs> and so, yeah, because she didn't... Yeah, and so when um, when he says at the very beginning that she's um, in danger because it's a little bit of blaming her for her own death, and I don't You're know totally if right. Set up um, that it's not sad, but I was like, no, that's super sad. No, it's sad, and it's not like a weird. She just loves money. She has more money than anybody, and she just can't stop hoarding money. It's like, no, she's up and coming. She probably doesn't have a lot of money. She wants to see her sister. There was this whole motivation about the sister being able to visit. So yeah, so it's a little bit like you're right. It is a little blamey. So Paro just is not like the hero in this for me like he didn't prevent any deaths he i mean he's the one who's supposed to be able to see stuff and he meets with this woman takes the job which we can't figure out why he took the job and then doesn't realize he's being shut up he Um, literally is the pawn that he that she wanted him to be because he's there to to, as this famous detective but to be like well she didn't have motivation because her husband would like so he should have been able to like see this because he's the famous detective and to see through her motivation for asking him like he should have right. said like what is the motivation because like why wouldn't you get someone who's known for negotiation to do this why a detective right so and then, but what he gets he sees through the fact that brian martin doesn't actually have someone following him he sees through that but 
And he's still mad about that one. Yeah, and so, but not the deception of like she didn't actually need a divorce. I mean, and and why would someone? No one's ever asked you to negotiate anything on their behalf before, right? Yeah, you're kind so, of abrasive. So why, you know, right? Like, why? Right. So yeah, so yeah. Now that I'm realizing, that's the other thing is that we like our detectives. I, I feel like there's two different detective styles. Um, and a lot of times for these kinds of, um, British murder mysteries, Holmes and Marple Poirot, we want them to be better than us. Well, okay. And that's the thing I was thinking about this because I was reading ahead to why didn't they ask Evans? And I, I, again, delighted, had no idea. There was like this other people, but again, so I feel like Agatha Christie has, two types right she's got the infallible all-knowing people mm-hmm. and the, like the ingenue stumbled into a mystery people right and like so the ingenues like you expect them to stumble into things and make mistakes because the whole time they're telling you we don't know what the hell we're doing we're just stumbling into a mystery right and we're in over our heads right and so when they stumble along you expect that because that's part of the premise but marple and paro are supposed to be these omnipotent or not omnipotent, but, you know, um, omniscient. Right. Like, people who can see things, can see patterns that we can't see. And so that's why I was so mad at this one, because I was like, Paro, you should have seen this. It, it, there wasn't a missing piece of the puzzle. Someone saying Ellis on the street shouldn't have been the reason. Like, you should have got there on your own. Right, right, because it's clear. Yeah, one in per- yeah. And yeah. so, like, you're right. I think that, like, when it comes to that, what we like about them is their infallibility, and so when, when Hastings is like, well, Praro, you know, Brian Marsh goes to jail and Praro loses interest. That's a really frustrating time in the book. <laughs> right. Right. And so yeah, it's, yeah. So Praro kind of sucks in the book. There's some sad death. of. And, and here's the thing with Praro. He's not a very likable character. He's abusive to Hastings. He, you know, he's, he's conceded and mean to his best friend right mm-hmm. but you deal with that because he's so smart it's like the Holmes thing like you said right. like we can deal with all of his other traits because he's so smart and we're like oh my gosh I never would have thought of that but in this one he's got all his negative traits and he's not so smart he doesn't get there and so you're like well then you don't get you don't get a pass for being a jerk then right because then you're just a jerk by the way, the fact that they cut all of the racial and um, anti-Semitic stuff out of the stuff one that you read, really, that makes sense because I was texting you about, you know, like reading again and being like, oh, it's bothering me so much. And you never responded. Like, <laughs> I know, right? So you must have just thought I was insane. You're like, what are you talking about? Or, or I was probably like, oh, I, I need to get to that part and I'll know what she's talking about. That was more like on my mind, like, oh yeah, I don't know what she's talking about, but when I get to that, I'm going to totally know and respond to this. Right, which but, then you never did because they cut it out. That makes so much sense. And, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I do think it is better to cut that shit out. It's because not we know Because we know, no, well, Ian, I, I mean, in some ways, like, there's a value in preserving the knowledge to know that our heroes are fallible and that Agatha Christie had a lot of racist stuff in her books but at the same time people are still consuming them and I think the fewer I think it's better not to consume that stuff like I'm not saying we need to go 
Right. There was no know, need to keep perpetuating. Take out half of Huck Finn because that is, you know, is what Huck Finn is. Right. But in this case, it's, right. it's, it's those drops in the bucket. But like, yeah, Praro saying that she's money grubbing because she's Jewish is whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Because <laughs> and it would have totally taken me out of the book. Right. And yeah. And so not only is he. And it can be reinforcing. I mean, look at the era we're living in. We're like, you know, Nazis are, are here again. Right. So I think the less that there's media that reinforces things. Right. You know, right. using of slurs and using of stereotypes. Like, I'm, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting ethical discussion to have. To like, do we leave that stuff in or cut it? But man, I'll say cut it right now. <laughs> right. Because the there's cur- no reason to keep perpetuating stereotypes. Right. And it just. And when our, when the hero of the book says something about Jewish people, that's something that a person who's reading it, and I was I would say an impressionable young people, but you know these days adults are dummies, right? <laughs> and are impressionable. Right. So, you know, it's I guess it's good that it's changed in the in the version that I that I read. Right. Right. That's interesting. And yeah. So, by the way, the movie version stuck with me um not just because of peter ustinoff who plays poro but because faye dunaway plays both carlotta adams and um jane wilkinson and it's set in the 80s not in the 30s (laughs) and so i thought faye dunaway was very believable as jane wilkinson but not as carlotta adams because i you know there's there is a difference between the kind of actor who can just disappear into a role. And so you can't even recognize them because they're so, you know, and the kind of actor who is so recognizable and so bigger than life that they often are playing themselves. And Faye Dunaway is option two. Right. Um, And so, and, uh, so dating ourselves because if you are younger than a certain age then you probably haven't watched a lot of Faye Dunaway movies but um I have to say I can't I know her name but I can't picture her face but I'm also bad with actor names I'm literally looking up her up right now so so, um but I remember when I watched it when she was playing the Carlotta Adams character I was like because in when the book starts oh her yeah okay i got it i got it (laughs) when the book starts um they don't say carlotta adams looks like jane wilkinson they say that she looks like a lot of other things and she just manages to but basically she's playing she's kind of a blank slate right and so she's got a rubber face that can and there are those actors who've got rubber faces that can you know become lots of different um yeah, lots of different faces. But um, yeah, Faye Dunaway was not that. So <laughs> it was an interesting role for her to take because, um, I yeah, I didn't believe her as the Carlotta Adams. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Um, but anyway, so um, I haven't seen any of the other versions because uh, there was a 2005, apparently. Uh, with, oh, really? And that and was done the... Again. the uh, that one was uh no i'm wrong it was 2000 sorry it was you know the david shoot uh oh yeah the ironically that version um trivia note here 
that thing in 85, Inspector Jap was played by the actor who would then play Poirot for 20 years. Oh, interesting. So he played Jap in one movie. He played Jap once. How funny. And then, and he has this like, you know, Cockney British accent. And then for 20 years, he plays Poirot. And, then, <laughs> and does the Belgian accent. And does the Belgian accent. And then the guy who played, yeah. And so, um, anyway, so that, it's kind of funny. Um, so, um, and then, of course, he played Poirot doing this story in that series. Because they did all of the stories with Poirot. Um, um, but I haven't seen So that. in the 2000 version, he plays Poirot? Right, right. So he, David, what's his face? David Suchet, yeah. So he's actually been in this story twice. Once as Jack and funny. once as Burrow. So Wait, who plays the actress in, in this one? In the in the 2000 version? Ooh, that one I'd have to look up. That... Hugh Fraser's Hastings. Right. Okay, Jalen Wilkinson is Helen Grace. Hmm. And Fiona Allen is Carlotta Adams, so it's not the same person. Oh, so they have two different actresses. Oh, that would be interesting to see because then... Yeah. I think um, since quarantine times seem to never end, I think, you know, once we finish all the books, I'm going to go through and watch, <laughs> try to find all the <laughs> right, we're gonna have to movie or, or series reproductions that I can. Well, and we talked about trying to find all the Tommy Tuppence ones because there's a new one, but it was on a, a channel that I have a lot of streaming options, but I don't think I had the one that uh, was that new Tavi and Tumpet's Partners in Crime one. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to find some of those things. Um, so overall, it's, it's a brilliant plot. Like Agatha Christie Wise, it's a brilliant murder plot, but it's an unsatisfying pro book. Yeah. Yeah. And like if I was to do a new movie reproduction, I would just have him figure it out earlier. Right, right. Maybe that's how they do it in the movies. I don't know, but it's it's unsatisfying because Praro doesn't shine at all. And so, at the beginning, when Hastings introduces it as the narrator, he says, "Well, Praro doesn't even like to talk about this one. He considered it one of its failings, but I think it was brilliant work of his." And so at the end, I was like, no, no, Praro's right. This is a failure. He shouldn't talk <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He shouldn't want to talk about this because, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But it, it's just. And I guess it's for me too. Like, I, I've realized this with myself when I watch, like, I try to watch Shonda Rhyme things. I always like them because she's good at setting up a formula. But then her genius is in disrupting her own formula. And I don't like that. As a consumer of media, I like to see a formula and I like you to, you know, to like, I like, I was really into scandal because there was like a scandal and the team would solve it. But then like she disrupts her own formula, which I think is a genius because, you know, formulas get old, but not to me. I like a formula <laughs> if you stick to it. And so in this one, it sort of disrupts the formula of Fraro being infallible. And, you know, like you said, we, that's, that's what we go for. We go for their, their ability to see things that we can't see. Right. So or, yeah, the other one, which, you know, the next, and obviously I think I really like the, I stumbled into solving it. Like, that's where I like Tommy and Tumpence or The Secret of Chimneys or, or The Man in the Brown Suit because it's a lot of like, 
oops, I accidentally solved a crime. And right, the amateurs doing this is a, a totally different energy. And it's interesting that she has, you know, she's got her archetypes at both extremes. Right. And, um, and yeah, because those are our capers, you know, wacky capers, the amateurs right. doing it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not the Holmes um, style at all, you know, because right. Sherlock Holmes did not have wacky capers. Um, right. And yeah, so I like her wacky capers. We still haven't quite figured out how to put the um, Mr. Quinn. What category is that? Because it's not even. That's a- its own thing. That's its own man. Its own thing. I mean, because it's funny because I feel like we're running out of things to say about this. We're kind of getting close to the end about kind of like wah, wah. And we spent uh, four and a half hours, five and a half hours talking about Mr. Quinn. Yeah. And still not enough. <laughs> it was one book and we're we spent all that time and here we are like i don't even know if we've cracked an hour you know and we're just yeah like, exactly eh, you know and so but speaking of our of our uh young adventurers um the next book is why didn't they ask evans which i did start ahead because you told me about it and oh man it's so good it's so fun but we're back to yeah like um yeah, young people, young people, and stumbling also, into mystery, and also this young people in the thirties, you know, twenties, thirties. So it's got the young people who are um, wearing flapper dresses and have short hair. You know, like you could just see it and having cocktails <laughs> in Chelsea. I don't know where Chelsea <laughs> is in, in London, but I, I can, I can see, I'm imagining it. You know. Um, so right uh, yeah and that one is so good yeah so anyway it's 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 a um so we're back to one of those and i do Poirot has some really one ones that i enjoy doing but it's what's funny about doing this with you where we're doing everyone in order is that there are the books that i have that i've found my paper copy and i've worn them out because i reread them so much because of you know like they just gave me so much joy to reread and then there are the ones that I was like, I read it once and I was like, eh. And Lord Edward, Ed, Lord Edgeware Dies was that, where I was like, yep, I never need to read this again. So then <laughs> I did, you know, and so then now I can't remember why I decided that. So then I right. read it again and I'm like, oh, that's why. <laughs> yeah. Hey, as an aside, this is, if, when I'm reading it, it feels like a critique of the writing. But because I cheat and audio read, it's actually a critique of the reading because I have realized um, some of the readers, in, in fact, I think all that I can think of when they do American accents as written by Agatha Christie, and may, I'm not sure it's the way she writes out the di- dialect or if it's just the reader's choice, they talk so slow as Americans <laughs> and I was like I'm an American who talks really fast and I mean I can I can still be like you can be ditzy in American you can be uneducated American but a lot of us talk really fast and so they but a lot of the the readers choose a drawl which I think especially people who are Americans in England is probably not likely I don't think they're going straight from Kentucky to, to London yeah to London right like I feel like they're probably a lot of East Coasters who talk fast like me and 
and so it's interesting when they when they when they do the American accent, and especially I notice it because like in this book, there's several American characters. Yeah, because there's a but, lot of. Them and so the, you know, the reader who's a woman in this one, it does several different voices, but they're all kind of slow. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, no Americans don't talk that slow. Like it's a very, it's, it's it's certain certain dialects do talk slow, but that's not typical. And I especially especially I feel like because East Coast is closer to London, probably a lot of people are more more East Coast, and we do not talk that slow. Even back then. Right. You know, like I'm picturing the Fibber McGee and Molly of the time or whatever. And that's not a slow talk. No, it's not. And 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 Jane Wilkinson presumably would have been from New York. Um, yeah, but she does this very slow what? talk like this. Like, you know what I mean? And you're just like, why? <laughs> well, I said, well, you know, as a reader, I mean, I guess I'm impressed that she can, the reader could do multiple american accents but you're right like um she must have been trying to concentrate and be like okay um yeah um that's or, or that's one way i think if you're trying to think of a way american talk you can picture someone more southern right and i'm not trying to say that southerners talk slow but i think that's a, a stereotype at least you know right right that some you know that has a, a different speech pattern but I noticed that because I, I was like, I talk really fast. And I know that's like one of my flaws and I, it's not atypical. And, and even whether you're smart or not smart or whatever it is, like a lot of us talk fast and even use filler words like like. So there's a lot of chatter going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and so anyways, that's an aside. But oh, that's <laughs> I was just noticing that because there were so many American characters and what they all had in common was their slow speech patterns. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Hurry up. Yeah. Hurry up. <laughs> what are you doing? That's not how we talk. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's funny to note. Um, yeah, because like, and I think this is the book that she has the most Americans in. It's a lot. Because Brian Martin was American. Carlotta was American. Jane Wilkinson was American. Okay, I just actually was questioning myself about um, the reference of Fibber McGee and Molly and when that was actually done. But that was in uh, starting in 1935. So that is a nice, uh, uh, appropriate reference. And our listeners, if you're like, how come these two people know a radio show that was on the air in 1935? It's because our parents had tapes of it in the 80s, and we listened to some of the tapes for fun. So we were listening to a 1930s sitcom that was on the radio in the 80s. And that's why we know. Right. I was about to make a white people joke, like that's just having white parents, but that might have been our parents. I think thing. that's an our parents. That might have been extremely white of us. <laughs> like more white than the average white. We <laughs> We're going to listen to 1930s through 1950s radio comedies. Because we heard Superman. On car trips. We heard Superman. We heard Fibber McGee and Molly. It's funny because I knew those. And then when I started as a history teacher, um, studying those, the ones that were more popular. And Fibber McGee mm -hmm. and Molly wasn't the most popular. The most popular was Amos and Andy. And because there's a whole history. It was a real niche reference of me to make. <laughs> um, no. It, it you was. know what, though? I was so proud. So, uh, uh, in our last one, you were talking about your media references. So, you know, mine are always like Kimmy Schmidt and stuff. Um, I There's a there's an episode of, of Kimmy Schmidt that I only understand because of this reference. Because um, 
there's an episode of Fibber McGee and Molly, I think it is, where there's a joke where this this werewolf who at daytime a horrifying thing happens to him and he becomes an advertising man. So it's written like one of these like horror stories, but the but it's switched up because he's like, you know, I, I was just normal one day and then all of a sudden I converted from being my normal werewolf life and I became an advertising man. And they use this like, you know, certain typical voice patterns and stuff that I think were used for like horror stories at the time. Right. So there's an episode of Kimmy Schmidt where Titus is, um, and if you haven't seen Kimmy Schmidt, so Titus is a gay black man living in New York. And so he's working at a restaurant that is a, a like a horror theme restaurant. So he's dressed up as a werewolf on his way to work. And his experience walking down the street of New York City as a werewolf is so much better than that of being a black man walking down the street that he decides to live as a werewolf. <laughs> because white women are just like handing him their babies taxi cabs are stopping everyone's being nice to him as a werewolf whereas a black man like everything's terrible so he's he's walking down the street at night and these white people are about to gentrify the neighborhood so they're walking through and they're like oh honey there's a werewolf he needs our help and then his glue starts to come off because he's been wearing the werewolf makeup too long he starts to melt off of him and then and then they're using those 1930s voices. The white people are like, oh, no, that werewolf is transforming into Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> and they look terrified and they use that like old school horror movie face. And I think I only understood that reference because oh, of like listening hilarious. to these. Because they use that they use that same tone of voice that like, right. oh, that no. werewolf is he needs our help. Oh, no, he's becoming Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Oh so, God. anyways, uh, that 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 was that was that's a real niche reference for us. <laughs> totally, but you know that's that's one of our things is niche references. And in case you, uh, by the way, because I referenced Amos and Andy, and you didn't do a oh, I know what you're talking about. Amos, and- I mean, I've heard of it, but we, but that was not something that our parents bought tapes of. Well, thank God, because it was two white men doing all the stereotypes of being black men. It was. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't. Yeah, yeah. because it okay. was the mm-hmm. radio equivalent. Yeah, I know of it. It's the radio equivalent of doing blackface. And so, um, uh, and it was incredibly But it popular. was contemporary to this. It was in that same time period? It was period. in that same time period. Well, you know, because it was also the time period when radio shows were a thing. Like, radio was, was new. Um, and so TV wasn't a thing yet. And so people listened to the radio the way... Um, we can watch TV. You could listen to soap operas. You could listen to comedy. You could listen to news. Um, that's what they did. They had multiple channels on the radio and they did multiple shows. Um, but um, the fact that Amos and Andy was so popular um, was it now. And then it was so popular that they turned it into a TV show, but then they cast African-Americans in the TV show. But the, Right. Okay. That's yeah. But the then the... Um, later obviously when tv was invented and then of course they had to do with these stupid stereotypes and right. continue them and it's go you know it's a long line that you can trace back to minstrel shows and so it's a whole thing but yes our parents did not get that one thank goodness <laughs> they got fibber mickey and golly so they only dealt with gender stereotypes not racial ones so right um but uh anyway uh 
so I've, I've learned even more about those radio shows. But all of those things are contemporary to this period of time that we're reading. And that's like, what brought the trip of the game Molly to my head. Because when I was listening to this one, it was getting painful how slow the Americans talk. Because in other episodes, there'd been like one American. I'm like, okay, that's one slow talking person from Kentucky. But in, in this one, there were all of the Americans talk slow. And that, I was picturing that sort of like chattery 1930s, you know, Right. I, I, I can't yeah. do an impression of it, of like American voice, but like, you know. Right. The flapper girl who's like hip now. And, and I, yeah, I can picture, like, I can, I can, in, you know, the sound version of picture. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, that, that, that speech pattern that's very fast. Um, like, what are you right. talking about? Of course right. I want cigarettes on my sandwich. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that was good. That was good. Yeah, Bianca always makes that joke. <laughs> but that's but that's the yeah, 1930s speech pattern. pattern that like this isn't slow at all and that's what i'm picturing like we're in the 30s now that's what the americans should sound like right they should be that but that's a lot like, i'm asking for a lot yeah. of these voice actors to do multiple people in multiple languages or multiple dialects from multiple countries and also have yeah and have the dialect of the 1930s americans right. yeah yeah so uh, so that's a, it's a very interesting point. Um, I, the other thing that's interesting is that now Agatha Christie is older. Um, she's on her second marriage. She's no longer a young ingenue when she's writing about the young ingenues. And so it's interesting that she is going back and forth between these two, like Poirot's and then ingenues. Um, and so, because it does, when you when you look at the list of stories in order, they're definitely like published kind of like, a Prara, a Marple, a Ingenue, a Prara. Yeah, it's you know, interesting. Like yeah, and I, you mentioned before that, like, you know, some of her self-references about it that maybe implies that she didn't like Praro. And this book made me feel like it. Because you you leave this book and you're definitely not Team Praro at all. Because <laughs> he took a job he right. shouldn't have taken. He never figured it out. Like, he stumbled onto the answer. Like, and he's kind of a jerk. So you're just like... Eh. right. And also, it's spelled E D G W A R E, Edgeware. Like, there should shouldn't there be an E between edge and where edgeware? Oh yeah, I kept adding it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then when I just looked it up, it's like no, there's not an E in the middle. But that might not be her fault. That might be the, just the way they spell it. Never did thinking. Yeah. Well, we won't nitpick next time. Next time, that we're gonna story be is delightful, about... and I can't wait to talk about it. And it's got a fun um, love story. Um, it is. It is yeah, hard. It's hard it's... to understand, like because of the nuance of the characters. Like I've finished it now, but I need to go back because I'm still confused. Like it's smart, yeah. and I need and and I I need to go back and reread. Right. Right. So um, yeah, there's just so much going on well thank you for joining us anyway. again and tolerating us kind of bashing a book again although the murder plot was so smart smart right yeah because this is different from yeah because it's kind of like we when we're bashing an agatha christie book sometimes we're bashing the story like in the big four only in the big four dumb <laughs> that was just a bad one. um then sometimes we're bashing because it's like a sad story like the what was it the peril at end house where you're just like well this is just sad um, and so this one, um, we're bashing the hero for not being himself, um, and the sad part. So, yeah. 
At least she's got the a, a cool But the murder plot, plot is plot ingenious. Pretty... Yeah. So all right, yeah, it's got something. Well, thank it. you guys for joining but us anyway. on Promopod. All right, have a good one. All right. One.